You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast, and specifically that subsection of the podcast known as Questions for Corbett. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this fourth day of August, 2014. As I say, this is Questions for Corbett, and it has been a while since our last one. Again, this was not something that was planned. It was just one of those things that happened. As I'm sure you know by now, my, my computer gave up the ghost a few weeks ago, so I had to get it repaired. So I was on a bit of an enforced vacation, and everything got sent a little bit further back um, than what I had intended. But here we are back with a Questions for Corbett, and from this point on, all things being equal, there should be a new podcast coming out from CorbettReport.com every Monday, whether that be Questions for Corbett, or whether that be Film literature in the New World Order, or whether that be the regular podcast series. At least that is the intention, and let's hope that that happens. Uh, As I say, this is Questions for Corbett, where exactly as it says on the tin, you write in your questions and I answer them. And there are different ways to get your questions in. As always, you can use the contact form on CorbettReport.com to leave a text message. You can also record yourself using the new SpeakPipe application. You can record an audio message, which I will play on the podcast, and we have a few examples of that this month. Uh, We also, of course, accept your YouTube responses or your Twitter uh, Twitter questions. Uh, again, just use the hashtag QFC. And uh, also, in addition, there's another way to get in touch um, these days. In fact, uh, one that will get priority. That is to leave a question in the comment section of CorbettReport.com. Of course, for members of CorbettReport.com, you can log in and leave your question for Corbett directly on the website, and I will do my best to try to answer those. So again, many, many different ways to get your question in. And as a result, there are many, many, many questions that come in on a uh, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. So again, there's been a lot of questions that have come in since the last episode of this, uh, questions for Corbett, and I cannot get all of them in, uh, I cannot answer them all in this one podcast. So as always, please accept my apologies. If your question did not get answered, it is not personal. It's just uh, we cannot physically answer them all. So here we go. We're going to open up the mailbag and get into the questions. And since the, since the last time we had a questions for Corbett, of course, we have uh, seen the release of the Federal Reserve documentary. Yes, the much ballyhooed Federal Reserve documentary that I've spent several months making. So there have been uh, quite a few questions about the Federal Reserve that have come in in the last few weeks. So let's answer some of those uh, first up and right off the bat. We're going to start with a, uh, a regular email that came in from Bob who said, who asked, could we air your Fed documentary on our local access uh, TV channel? Well, I apply. I replied directly to Bob to answer this, but I'll, I'll answer this here in the open forum here as well to say absolutely yes. In fact, it's uh, wonderful to see people with that idea. I think this is a great and perhaps often overlooked tool for uh, info warriors out there to get this information out to others. Access TV, of course, uh, public access is a great way of getting some of this uh, th- these ideas out because, of course, most public access will allow you to uh, to help uh, take part in their programming and will uh, perhaps potentially allow you to, for example, air a documentary, assuming, of course, you have the right to air that documentary, um, on subjects like the Federal Reserve or what have you. So uh, an excellent tool to use generally. And, of course, in this specific case with the Federal Reserve documentary, of course, you have my blessing to play it on local access TV or wherever else that you can get it played. Um, of course, 100%. The answer is yes. And this is another... This is an 
answer to another question that I get uh, quite a lot from people who want to support uh, the work in the, the Federal Reserve documentary but don't have the money to, to buy a DVD or they, they want to do something different than just buying a DVD. Of course, I really do appreciate your monetary support with uh, DVD purchases. It really does help to make this work possible and it makes future documentaries possible. But more than that, of course, there are things that you can do that don't involve any money whatsoever that can help me out. Not only, for example, playing this on Access TV or, or helping to mirror or spread the, the, the link around to, to people in your contact list or what have you, but also some other ideas. Um, I do need translation help. Um, I've, of course, the entire transcript for the entire documentary is up on corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve. So it's all there. If you do speak another language and you do want to put in the effort to help translate this, please do so. And I will make that uh, that translation available through through the website or on the YouTube video or, or in whatever form seems best, uh, depending on the way that you provide the, the, the translation. Um, that's that's going to be helpful. In fact, we already have a couple of people working behind the scenes on creating a German translation of the documentary, so hopefully that will be available in the near future. Other languages would be helpful. Please get in touch with me and we'll, we'll coordinate just to make sure that no one's duplicating anyone else's work. Um, some other ideas, of course, you can... Uh, oh, here's an, an idea that if you implement this, it'll take 90 seconds out of your day, but it'll genuinely really help me out. If you have a favorite media host out there, please just uh, just drop them a line just to say, hey, I, I heard uh, James Corbett is available for interviews on his new Federal Reserve documentary. I suggest you check it out. Just something like that. Just a nice, pleasant little note to suggest having me on as a guest. And that can really make a difference. So again, whatever media hosts you listen to, please write in and ask them to have me on. I'm happy to talk about this documentary anywhere that will have me on to talk about it. Um, so that's just another idea. So lots of different ways that you can help out with this work and if you want to help spread the information that has been contained in this documentary. All right, let's move on to the next question. This one, a speak pipe message that came in from Jennifer. Hi, James. This is Jennifer from California. Uh, you had mentioned in one of your interviews that one of the most important um, factors of freeing ourselves from the financial system is getting out of debt. I was wondering for your questions to Corbett whether you could um, expand a little bit on that and what that means in terms of how the banks can continue to con control us through debt after the financial system crashes and the dollar is completely uh, devalued. Thanks a lot. All right, Jennifer, thank you very much for that question. I do appreciate it. And it is a good question because it raises an important issue, something that I've talked about many times, the the idea of debt itself as being the type of chains of enslavement referred to in the title of the documentary, Century of Enslavement, that we are tied to the bankers through these debt chains that enforce us, obligate us to work 10, 20, 30, 40 years of our life to pay off our auto loans and credit cards and mortgage debt and all of these other forms of debt that uh, we go into in order to, well, to obviously re uh, get the goods that we want, but more importantly, from the macroeconomic point of view, to create the money itself, which most of it is created through debt to the bankers. Again, a great system if you're a banker. And uh, this is, of course, a problem because in times of economic crises where the, uh, the, the, the currency uh, becomes debased and developed 
valued and they have to switch over to a new system, of course, they can suddenly have a bank holiday and suddenly revalue the uh, the dollar and, and you know, new dollars will be worth uh, um, uh, whatever, 10, 10 of the old dollars so that suddenly your entire bank account will be reduced by 90% overnight. That type of thing is certainly possible in the type of economic collapse scenario that I think is in the cards at some point, or is at least one of the cards in the deck that the bankers can use when they do seek to finally take over this system completely. And uh, in such a system, of course, if you have uh, a, a large debt, it will obviously be re- revalued into the new dollars as well, as as will your bank account, and suddenly you'll be earning new dollars, so that ultimately you will be in uh, e- either the same position or potentially in an even worse position than you were before, and uh, the prospect of debtor prison is something that we associate with some sort of 19th century Dickensian type of Victorian era um, uh, type of uh, idea, but it is something that uh, more and more is is likely to occur in the event of some sort of economic collapse, where literally the, the debt chains, the debt enslavement becomes quite literal, and people are once again thrown into forced servitude in, uh, in some sort of debtor prison to work off their debts to the banks. Again, that is a possibility. I'm not saying that's going to happen overnight, but I'm saying it certainly could happen in the event of the economic economic collapse that we do see in the cards, or at least as one of the decks, uh, one of the cards in the deck. Now, this is not to say that all debt or all the idea of credit itself is necessarily evil. Um, it really does depend uh, how it's done and by whom and for what purpose and in what way. And uh, there are uh, alternative monetary systems that are predicated on the idea of money created through credit, but that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with bankers and debt obligations of that sort. It could be a mutual credit system or even self-issued credit, as uh, Paul Grignon has argued for, and as I always like to try to point people towards, because I think it's a pretty ingenious system that he's come up with. So I'll put some links in the show notes uh, to do with those alternative monetary systems that, that also rely on some sort of credit creation process so that the economy can expand when it needs to, which I think is an important part of any economic system. So again, this isn't to say that debt itself is a bad idea, but the debt that we have today where we pay bankers for the privilege of creating our money out of nothing um, or out of our obligation to pay back to them, more importantly, is a pretty untenable system and one that we really shouldn't allow to continue. All right, moving along, uh, we have a a question in from Raga Daga who writes, I am currently reading Secrets of the Temple, How the Federal Reserve Runs the Country by William Grader. So far, I've learned that the Fed is granted not only the authority to create new money by the issuance of interest-bearing loans out of nothing, but also the authority to destroy money when these loans are repaid. Do you know of any instances when the Fed has actually destroyed money or maybe a ratio of the money destroyed versus money created? All right, thank you very much for that, Ragadaga. That is uh, a, a good question because, again, this is an important concept to understand, and it's really not so complicated. Um, as uh, I hope people are are more more aware these days, the, the Federal Reserve helps to create, to expand the monetary supply by creating money and injecting it into the uh, the, the reserve accounts of various banks um, through their Federal Open Market Committee, which decides on whether to buy or sell uh, treasuries um, in in the open market from whoever is buying or selling and, and putting the, uh, the funds into or taking the funds out of the reserve accounts of the banks through which those, uh, those uh, treasuries are bought and sold. So by putting those funds in or taking those funds 
funds out, they can literally put money into the, the economy, into the monetary supply, or to take it out. And the Federal Reserve can do that at uh, at any time, just based on whether it's going to be buying or selling uh, treasuries in order to inflate or uh, contract the money supply. Um, perhaps more importantly, just as more uh, the, the greater share of the, the, the money supply is created by just the regular commercial banks in their everyday uh, lending operations, so too the regular commercial banks have the ability to take money out of the economy by simply retiring loans. Calling in loans and failing to issue new loans means that they'll be contracting the money supply because, again, the money is created as debt. As that debt is retired, the money supply itself shrinks. Um, So that is the way that money expands or contracts in the economy. And yes, it certainly has contracted in the past. It has been destroyed. Um, And one of the most notable examples was the Great Contraction. That is not my term for it. It's Milton Friedman's uh, description of the 1929 to 1933 contraction of the money supply. I believe it was by almost one third of of the money supply of the United States evaporated away as banks started to fold, as they called in uh, loans, as they tightened credit. Um, and basically the entire economy started to contract. The Federal Reserve made that even worse because um, in a pre-Federal Reserve system, the the other banks, the stronger banks, at least had some sort of incentive to try to save, to band together, to to try to save some of the smaller institutions. Of course, they got to decide which ones lived and which ones died, but at any rate, they had some interest in saving the financial system itself, so they would band together in that. But in the Federal Reserve system, suddenly there was this idea that, well, this is, you know, everyone's kind of uh, tied to the system and it's the system that's keeping us all afloat. So as Friedman pointed out, the Federal Reserve definitely exacerbated the great contraction of the 29 to 33 period, which was the heart of the Depression. That's why the Depression really happened and uh, what really got it underway in earnest. It wasn't the crash itself, the 1929 crash. It was the contraction of the money supply that was the real problem at the time. And that's why, as I include in the documentary, there's that quote from um, uh, Bernanke at Milton Friedman's 90th birthday. Uh, Yes, you, you know, you said that the Federal Reserve uh, created or uh, caused the Great Depression. Well, you're right, and but we won't do it again. Um, ha ha ha. You know, what a wonderful statement to make. But there you go. So that's what that was all about. The money supply can and does contract because money can be destroyed simply by loans being called in and not new loans not being issued. All right, let's move to a different issue. Um, Gabrielle writes, according to the documentary, the Federal Reserve documentary, someone testifying suggested we haven't had any gold since 1934. Uh, 9-11 truthers have information about trucks full of gold leaving the WTC on or near 9-11. It was associated with WTC 7, Bush and Giuliani, and why would our gold be stored there instead of a bank? Did they have the authority to move it using the military? I thought our money was controlled by Congress. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Gabrielle. A few things in there to qu- clarify. Um, first of all, yes, uh, the there's a clip in the documentary of, uh, of Scott Alvarez, I believe, uh, a Federal Reserve um, employee of some sort who was uh, testifying in a uh, congressional committee hearing that was uh, being um, run by uh, Ron Paul. He was testifying that, no, the, uh, the Federal Reserve does not have any gold on its books and hasn't since 1934 when they were obligated, um, like everyone else in the country, to turn over their gold to the U.S. government, and they received gold certificates um, in exchange, which is really just an accounting thing. It it has nothing to do with gold itself. It was just there to represent the value of the gold that they they turned over to the uh, the Treasury, and uh, that's what they have on their books today, and it's still valued at the $42 and one-third or whatever per ounce that was the statutory price of gold at the time. It has uh, nothing to do with the spot price of gold today, the 13 
1400 plus dollars. So, um, so that's an interesting little part of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve does not have any gold holdings, not any actual physical gold or, or not even any, anything that represents physical gold. Um, <clears throat> It's a slightly different issue, though, to talk about what happened on 9-11 with the gold. And um, basically, for the full rundown on that, I'm going to direct people back to episode 67 of the podcast, uh, the 9-11 Money Trail, where I did talk about this. And I highlighted a, a very good rundown synopsis of this issue from 911research.wtc7.net. Um, talking about precious metals in WTC4 vault, only a fraction recovered, question mark. And this lays it out. Um, basically, in the basement of 4 World Trade Center, there was a large vault that stored hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold. It's not exactly clear exactly how much gold. There are conflicting reports from different sources. But somewhere between $650 million and a billion uh, dollars worth of gold were being stored in the vaults under 4 World Trade Center. And... Uh, and Giuliani made a specific point about um, about recovering that gold, and when that gold was recovered, or as much as of it as they were going to recover, that's when the firefighters were pulled off of ground zero, and that's why the firefighters still to this day hate Giuliani because he he pulled them off of uh, ground zero cle- the the ground zero cleanup, despite the fact they hadn't recovered all their uh, fellow firefighters' bodies. Um, so uh, that that's where that whole animosity between the firefighters and uh, and Giuliani comes from. And basically, Giuliani was in it because he wanted to recover that gold, or at least as much of it as they could. And uh, the interesting thing is, on November 1st, uh, Giuliani announced more than $230 million worth of gold and silver bars um, that were stored in the bomb-proof vault at the bottom of World Trade Center 4 had been recovered. Um, however, again, there are different reports about how much was actually stored there, as much as uh, as much as a billion dollars or nine hundred fifty million dollars worth of gold, by a Times Online estimate talking about Comex Metals trading, Comex clients, the Bank of Nova Scotia, all storing money in that vault. Um, there's a separate issue involved here, which is actually the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is of course not too far from um, from what was happening that morning on nine eleven. Uh, is also a uh, has a huge gold vault, which is actually, I mean, open to the public. You can take a tour of that gold vault, or at least as much of it as they're going to show you, where the Federal Reserve Bank of New York acts as a custodian for basically central banks and uh, large institutional holders of gold. Um, and they, uh, I think something like 98% of their, their gold vault is, is full of uh, holdings for other central, uh, other central banks. Of course, it's a question of how much of that is actual gold and how much of it is gold-plated uh, tungsten or whatever and uh, and how much of it is actually owned by the the, uh, the central banks that they say is owned and how much do they lease out to other people and all of that craziness to do with Germany wanting to get an, uh, an accounting of their physical gold from the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of New York. But anyway, the point is that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York also has a very, very large uh, gold vault. I, I believe it's 6,700 tons of gold, uh, at least capacity in that vault. And um, and the whole issue of whether or not there were hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold that were taken from for World Trade Center that morning has to do with a report about some trucks that were recovered in a tunnel going to World Trade Center 5. And the report, the initial report is a bit confusing. It seems to suggest that there were trucks that had gold that were recovered from the tunnel, but it it's also written in a way that it could just be that those trucks were recovered from the tunnel that led to the 
the vault where the gold was recovered from. Again, it's it's a really confusing report, so there there's nothing conclusive here. We don't have conclusive evidence of of gold um, theft that was taking place on the morning of 9-11, but there's at least enough there that a real thorough, actual investigation of 9-11 would have, should have, could have looked into that issue. Of course, the 9-11 Commission didn't. Um, uh, And uh, just as a side note, I don't know what to make of this, but it is interesting if people have seen Die Hard with a Vengeance, aka Die Hard 3, that plot revolved around the idea of terrorists faking and staging this big big, colorful, you know, exciting terrorist incident in order to distract people and the police and everyone in New York from a gold vault heist that was taking place in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, gold vault. So, again, one of these types of predictive programming things, I mean, if 9-11 did involve gold being stolen from the vaults of World Trade Center 4 or what have you, then was uh, was that foreshadowed in something like Die Hard with a Vengeance? I don't know. But again, just an interesting little side note on all of that. Um, again, I'll put some links in the show notes for all of that um, so you can look into it for yourself. Okay, let's uh, let's shift gears. Uh, a lot of economic stuff there. Let's shift gears into other types of issues and let's go to the, the website itself for a, a member comment slash question that came in from Timstick1 and he writes on my recent uh, Truth Over Comfort appearance about uh, the the horrifying truth of American eugenics. He writes, I'm interested to know your understanding of the relationship between the eugenics agenda multiculturalism, and Frankfurt School-initiated identity politics as understood by Gilad Atzmon. In other words, how did an attempt to reduce the non-white population develop into a defense of that population and their eventual protection by the ideology of political correctness? Are the two agendas, destruction and protection of non-whites, in any way related, or are we dealing with two completely separate ideologies? Okay, this is a very important question, and I'm glad you asked it, Tim Stick One, because this goes to the heart of, I think one of the, the, the most important issues um, that, that we really face. I mean, obviously, I think the eugenics agenda is a core part of what's going on in the world and has been for the uh, century and a half that it's been formulated and out in the open. And I think even before that, I mean, there's, as I say, the ruling elite have always tried to have some sort of justification for their, their ruling, or at least one that they can give to people that will make them understand it. And in our scientific era, the scientific explanation is that they're just genetically superior to us. So they should, they deserve to be rich and rule over us is basically the eugenics agenda in a nutshell. But people look at something like the the multicultural multiculturalism phenomenon being pushed by a lot of the large you know globalists and globalist politicians etc. and all of this and the sort of attack on traditional Western culture and values and things of like of that sort and they think well look this is I mean it's look Europe is being overrun by Muslims um, so clearly this is an attack on on the white population or what have you. I understand I understand people's perspectives on this, but I really think when we start to play into that identity politics game is where we lose that game, because this is a game that has been constructed by the cultural engineers as part of the overall depopulation agenda to get us fighting with each other, whether it's the, along the class lines, the race lines, the sex lines, the sexual orientation lines all of these ways of pitting us against each other so that we are constantly battling against each other rather than battling the people at the very top of the system. And here's the ultimate 
uh, overview of, of what's going on here is that the people at the very top, the people at the heads of these eugenics organizations who happen to be the same, you know, multi-billionaires who are uh, at the top of the foundations and all, all of the structures that really undergird the globalist system and all of these um, institutions that, that wield all this political power in our current world system, including, of course, the Rockefeller family that's been intimately involved with the eugenics agenda since its inception and who, uh, of course, we had Rockefeller III as part of the Population Council, which was really just the American Eugenic Society by another name, etc., etc. These people at the very top of the system, they are not... First of all, they're not obviously trying to promote some sort of Muslim takeover or, you know, the, 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 the Muslim world should should be dominant over the white world or, or things of that nature. That has, obviously, why on earth would the Rockefellers and Rothschilds and others want to promote that except as a way of breaking down traditional Western culture and values, etc. And nor do they want to promote uh, white culture or white the white people or the white race or anything of that sort. Uh, it has nothing to do with your skin color or whatever. It is really a clique of parasitic criminals at the top of the system who are going to do anything to defend their little clique. They're, they're literally bloodline family in, in some cases when you look at the Darwin Wedgwood Huxley clan or you know the Rockefellers marrying in with the Aldriches, marrying in with all of the other, you know, American nobility, etc. Um, they, they, they are these tight, small groups of people who genuinely believe they are the, the, the natural rulers of the rest of humanity and everyone else is scum. So I don't care what color your skin is, how many dollars you have in your bank account, what, uh, what gender you are or sexual orientation or what have you, if your name isn't a Rockefeller or a Rothschild or a Vanderbilt or one of these, you know, family names, you are not part of their clique and you are the target. So we all have an interest in banding together against these people. It really isn't about these issues that set us at each other's throats. Those issues are set up specifically to get us fighting. And unfortunately, they work extremely well. So I think we have to be very careful about this. And the ways that we look at this phenomenon that's developing, because again, the people at the top of the system, the globalists, of course they don't care. They don't want the, you know, the, the brown people of the world to take over the white people or what have you, or vice versa, or anything of that sort. It's truly about this small ruling class within just this tiny little grouping who want the rest of the world either dead or subject, subjugated to them economically. So... Unfortunately, they're doing very well in that agenda as we continue to squabble with one another, as if the average person walking around here in my daily life in Japan or in your daily life, wherever you are, is the enemy of some sort. Of course, that's not the case. The enemy, the true enemy is at the top of the system, the eye of the pyramid. And uh, fighting with the other people at the bottom of the pyramid is not only is not only pointless, but it is counterproductive because it stops us from uh, confronting the real parasitic criminal elite at, who are running this system, the powers that shouldn't be. So on that note, let's go to a uh, perhaps related question, this time a tweet from at the second going who writes, what do you mean by the Anglo-American establishment? Now, this is a good question because this is a term that I, I use occasionally. I don't think I throw it around that often, but it is a term that I use, and it does have a specific meaning, so I think it behooves us to know that meaning. And, of course, the term itself, I don't know if it originates from, but certainly I think it's probably best defined by uh, Carol Quigley, who wrote uh, in a book that was published in, I don't know, I believe the 1960s. Um, I'll look that up, and <laughs> anyway, I'll put the link to the book itself in the show notes so you can go and read the book, um, and and from that we can get some indication of what Carol Quigley meant by the Anglo-American establishment. Let's just read the first few paragraphs of this book from the preface. He writes... 
quote, The Rhodes scholarships established by the terms of Cecil Rhodes' seventh will are known to everyone. What is not so widely known is that Rhodes, in five previous wills, left his fortune to form a secret society which was to devote itself to the preservation and expansion of the British Empire. And, was, and what does not seem to be known to anyone is that this secret society was created by Rhodes and his principal trustee, Lord Milner, and continues to exist to this day. To be sure, this secret society is not a childish thing like the Ku Klux Klan, and it does not have any secret robes, secret handclasps, or secret passwords. It does not need any of these, since its members know each other intimately. It probably has no oaths of secrecy, nor any formal procedure of initiation. It does, however, exist, and holds secret meetings over which the senior members preside, uh, present preside. At various times since 1891, these meetings have been presided over by Rhodes, Lord Milner, Lord Selburne, Sir Patrick Duncan, Field Marshal Jan Smuts, Lord Lothian, and Lord Brand. They have been held in all the British dominions, starting in South Africa about 1903, in various places in London, chiefly 175 Piccadilly, at various colleges at Oxford, chiefly All Souls, and at many English country houses such as Tring Park, Blickling Hall, Cliveden, and others. This society has been known at various times as Milner's Kindergarten, as the Round Table Group, as the Rhodes Crowd, as the Times Crowd, as the All Souls Group, and as the Cliveden Set. All of these terms are unsatisfactory, for one reason or another, and I have chosen to call it the Milner Group. Those persons who have used the other terms, or heard them used, have not generally been aware that all these various terms refer to the same group. It is not easy for an outsider to write the history of a secret group of this kind, but since no insider is going to do it, an outsider must attempt it. It should be done, for this group, this group is, as I shall show, one of the most important historical facts of the 20th century. End quote. All right, we'll leave it there. Again, the entire book is there online for you to read, and I suggest you do so to get a better handle on this group and Carol Quigley's uh, approach to it. Of course, this is ultimately the same type of nexus that he was writing about in Tragedy and Hope and, uh, and, and his other writings and that he talked about in interviews. Again, there's a, an early episode of the Corbett Report podcast uh, talking about the roundtable group that I will include in the uh, show notes, so you can go and listen to that and get a better grasp of these people and who they are. But this, of course, was the, uh, the, 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 the big quotation that's often quoted from Quigley, and these these powers ha had a far-reaching aim for international capital, the creation of a system of economic control in the hands of a very few, um, coordinated through the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, the Central Bank of Central Banks. Again, that's a paraphrase, but you can find that quote easily enough online. Um, now, this Anglo-American establishment concept has been taken and sort of added or used in various uh, forms by various people, um, throwing around different interpretations of it and who's behind it, etc. But that's kind of the genesis of where this idea comes from. And uh, I think it's a very important thing to take a look at for many reasons. And uh, one of them is simply that it provides us an idea of how these secret societies, the really important ones, actually function, which isn't necessarily through robes and handclasps and things that we traditionally associate with secret societies, but it's a, uh, it's a group that's small enough that these people all know each other, they all interact, they don't need to be told, you know, don't spill the secrets because they're all in on it. And that's the inner circle of the inner circle of the inner circle. And around themselves, they construct these larger outer circles of a Bilderberg group of 125 members, or a council on foreign relations of 5,000 members, or larger and larger rings of larger and larger people who may not know anything at all about the real nucleus inside the core of that group that steers the agenda. 
And uh, again, that's the concept of Rings Within Rings, which G. Edward Griffin has presented on. I'll include a link to his presentation and which I've attempted to um, basic, basically delineate in a, a shorter eye-opener report, uh, which I will also include in this. So that's my first approximation and an attempt at an answer at that very expansive question. So thank you for that at the second going. Okay, next we have an email in from Vin who writes, During her speech, some analysts are saying Lagarde, Christine Lagarde, was hinting that July 20th, 2014 would be a significant date, possibly the global currency reset. Your thoughts? Question mark. Thank you for that, Vin. And for those of you out there who have no idea what Vin is talking about, he is referring to a speech, a very, very interesting, bizarre speech that was given by Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, back in January of this year. Now I'm going to test you um, numerology skills by asking you to think about the magic seven. Okay? Most of you will know that seven is quite a number in all sorts of themes, religions, and uh, I'm sure that you can compress numbers as well. So, if we think about 2014, all right, I'll, I'm just giving you 2014, you drop the zero, 14, two times seven. Okay, that's just by way of example, and we're going to carry on. So 2014 will be a milestone and hopefully a magic year in many respects. It will mark the 100th anniversary of the First World War back in 1914. It will mark the 70th anniversary, 70th anniversary, drop the zero, seven. <laughs> of the Bretton Woods Conference that actually gave birth to the IMF. And it will be the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. 25th. Okay. It will also mark the seventh anniversary of the financial market jitters that quickly turned into the greatest global economic calamity since the Great Depression. The crisis still lingers. Yet, optimism is in the air. We've left the deep freeze behind us, and the horizon looks just a bit brighter. So my hope and my wish for 2014 is that after those seven miserable years, weak and fragile, we have seven strong years. Now, I don't know whether the G7 will have anything to do with it, <laughs> or whether it will be the G20, I certainly hope that the IMF will have something to do with it. All right. Again, an interesting little speech. There's more to it. I'll let you go watch the full speech, or at least the, the relevant video online that takes the highlights of that speech. But very interesting, and all around revolves around this magic number seven. Uh, again, pretty strange. And uh, one thing to keep in mind was that this speech was given in January, which was before the G8 became the G7 once again, and she's referring to the G7. I mean, it's a, a, again, there's some interesting things in there. And uh, basically, this video goes on to conclude, yes, that something she's referring, like when you add up all these numbers in a certain way, you get to July 20th, 2014. I include this question, although it is clearly after July 20th, 2014 right now, and July 20th was not an, a significant date. There was no global currency reset or what have you. Um, I'm including this because it's... Um, 
it's one of, it's an example of a phenomenon that in the entire time I've been doing the Corbett Report, I don't know if there's ever been a time in which there hasn't been some date that someone has suggested, oh, everything's going to change on this date. It's, it's numerological. Look at, you know, 777, something's going to happen or what have you, whatever, whatever that uh, date might, might have been. There's always some date that people are looking forward to. In this case, it was July 20th and everyone was getting panicked. Oh, what's going to happen on July 20th? Um, uh, again, it's it's uh, uh, th- this idea of num- numerology and and there are numbers behind things and and the, the 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 secret elite that shouldn't be the powers that shouldn't be are obsessed with this numerology. I, I certainly I see certain things in that and I think there are certain things to that that idea, but it has never ever once been used to accurately predict any sort of event. Never, I've seen thousands of predictions. This date, that date, it's going to happen. This is going to happen on that date. Look, it's all numerological. Every single one has failed. So just working inductively here, I'm going to say that until I see someone who is actually able to predict real world events based on these numbers alone, I uh, I take them with a great big grain of salt. It's It's easy to come up with numbers and things after an event happens, but it seems to be impossible before the event, and hey, I'd love to be proven wrong. Someone please predict an event just based on the numbers alone. I don't think it's going to happen. But again, that uh, having said that, that Lagarde speech was very interesting and very strange for a number of reasons. And now people are looking at the not only the 777 that went missing a, f- a couple of months ago, but now the 777 that was just shot down in Ukraine, and uh, it was Flight 17, and all of the sevens that that add up in in the date that it was first uh, uh, first flew, and the date that it crashed, and all of these things. There's sevens floating around in there, and and again, I mean, there's I'm not I'm willing to entertain the idea that there's something behind it, but as for predictive value in this, I don't see any. I've never seen anyone predict anything through these numbers, so I take it all with a hefty grain of salt. Um, well, let's leave that there. Let's move on to the next question. Again, a speak pipe question. This one coming in from Toby. Um, now I know that there are many very smart people who may or may not work for the government that could make a teeny drone themselves for spying at events like Bilderberg meetings, uh, the Fed closed door meetings, spying on royal families like the Cobart, Gothas, and so on. Um, The government has drones the size of mosquitoes and much likely smaller, so um, why has nobody made a drone using it against the government. I'm not talking about the drone that somebody flew over the NSA building that was huge. I'm talking about um, really teeny drones that have excellent microphones and cameras that can spy on these crooks. So, um, yeah, anyways, thanks for your time, James, and your brilliant work. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for the question, Toby. Um, it's an interesting question because the question, I guess, is in some way, can we use these technologies that they, we know they're using against us? Can we use it effectively against them? <clears throat> in the case specifically of these drones, I'm pretty skeptical that this could be used against uh, the Bilderberg or whatever um, because, I, I, again, I mean, they, they have the, these billions of dollars in, in black budgets to, to play with. I mean, who knows how much of this phony, funny money they have to throw around at these questions to create these technologies that we can probably only but dimly guess at from the outside. I mean, who knows, again, what's really happening in the bowels of the Pentagon and in DARPA and these other um, black research projects that we, we don't know about until many, many decades after the 
fact, usually. Um, so they have all of this money and time and technology to create these technologies and these miniaturized drones. Who knows how small they really are? Of course, they admit to insect-sized drones, but, I mean, who knows how small they really get and how sophisticated that technology really gets. The question is, even if we were able to get our hands on similar technology to what we think they have, uh, some sort of miniaturized drone, an insect drone, or what have you, don't you think they would have the defenses against that? Don't you think they have the ability to, to scan and sweep for, for detection devices of various sorts? I mean, sweep for bugs, as it were. Bugs, quite literally, I suppose. Um, don't, I, I, it just seems natural to me that they would develop the defenses against this technology at the same time they develop the technology itself. I don't think we're going to uh, win that that head-on technological arms race because, again, they have however many billions of dollars in this phony, funny money they, they print out of nothing to throw at these problems, and you and I have, you know, a couple of dollars to scrape together at the end of the month. So... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't want to say that I, I... Well, I'm not opposed to people trying, I guess, to, to technologically counteract what's going on or to use this technology against them. I don't think it would get anywhere. And ultimately, I think you're uh, probably just going to get thrown in one of their prisons and locked away in a cage for, for attempting to do so. I, I just don't... I, I, I fail to see that that type of technology is going to be successfully used against the people who control and own and create that technology. Um, maybe I'm just being overly cynical, but I just, again, I don't see how that would work. Um, let's move on to a Twitter question from Dan, aka at dwake216, and he writes, uh, James was interested in your take on this. They claim it to be a much more likely scenario, and he provides a link to a uh, website that is actually no longer online, but uh, using the Wayback Machine, you can find it, um, and links to various sources. And it's an interesting little uh, website that claims, of course, that uh, the whole Fukushima thing from top to bottom was a hoax. And it seems to claim everything about the Fukushima was a hoax. That the earthquake either... It, it, it happened, but it wasn't quite like the earthquake they said it was. The tsunami wasn't like the tsunami they said it was. The meltdowns at the reactors weren't like what they said it was. I, everything is a hoax, but I'm not exactly sure what that implies in this overall uh, framework that they're trying to set up. Again, I've seen this type of idea. There's a, a, quite a few people <clears throat> who are propounding these types of ideas. And uh, I, l let's just take one of the claims that they, they throw around on this. Again, they throw 100 claims at the wall, and I guess like spaghetti, they're hoping something will stick. Um, but uh, one of the claims that they throw around is that the, the earthquake, which uh, of course was a 9.0 magnitude earthquake on the Richter scale, they say, no, it wasn't really a 9.0. It was... It was actually a 7.0, and they're, they're trying to hide this or obscure this for some unknown reason. I'm not sure what difference it ultimately makes, because at any rate, a tsunami happened, unless a tsunami didn't really happen. But they, they seem to believe a tsunami happened, so I'm not sure, again, what this is all about. But they say, no, it wasn't a 9.0, it was a 7.0, and we have all these different sources that we can show that it was actually 7.0. For example, eyewitness testimony of people who were actually in Japan at the time like this. Oh my gosh, okay, so we're walking now, and I'm in Makuhari Mese, and we just, we just experienced a 7-point earthquake, it's the first earthquake I've ever experienced this hardcore, and we're in like a huge stadium, and I'm freaking out a little bit, I was okay. Well, there you go, it was a 7, right? There you go. It wasn't a 9.0, it was a 7, as confirmed by people who were there. And other sources. There are all sorts of other maps and things that people will point to in this regard that 
all seem to show that this was a seven, six point six seven in some cases, or or something around that that uh, regards. And somehow this got all covered over, and now the USGS and all these other organizations are in on this big conspiracy to make it a nine point when it never was such. It's all part of the Fukushima hoax, I tell you. Um, this is one of those things that bring to mind that quotation um, by Thomas Jefferson where he was talking about newspapers at the time and he said that people who read newspapers in this day and age are probably less informed than people who don't read them at all because they think they know about something. But people who actually know about that that particular piece of knowledge know how badly the newspapers communicate it so, to the point where people who read it are basically just being misinformed. And this is, I think, one of those cases because there is a very, very basic and central point to the the discussion of the size of an earthquake, the intensity of an earthquake when it comes to earthquakes in Japan, that if you're in Japan, you probably know about, and if you're not, you probably don't, and it really does affect everything. There is actually a different si- uh, seismic intensity scale for that Japan uses um, than the one that is currently internationally used, the Richter scale. These are different readings that, on different measurements, and they, they are different scales that actually can't even be directly compared because they measure different things. Um, just reading from the, the general uh, about uh, the J- Japanese uh, Japan Meteorological Agency seismic intensity scale, Unlike the moment magnitude scale, a more accurate scale for larger earthquakes than the outdated Richter scale, which measures the energy released by the earthquake, the JMA scale describes the degree of shaking at a point on the Earth's surface and is analogous to the Mercalli intensity scale. Um, The intensity of an earthquake is not totally determined by its magnitude and varies from place to place. For example, a quake may be described as Shindo, that's Japanese Meteorological Agency Seismic Intensity Scale, Shindo 4 in Tokyo, Shindo 3 in Yokohama, Shindo 2 in Shizuoka. So there is a a scale, and it's it's Shindo, it's measured from 0 to 7, and it measures the actual... Um, shaking at the Earth's surface um, at various locations. So it varies from place to place, um, even in the same earthquake. Now, this, again, is something that's very common. I mean, this is something that everyone in Japan knows, and probably people outside of Japan don't know about, that Japan has its own scale that they use to measure their earthquakes. And again, this runs from 0 to 7. In fact, there's 10 points in this scale, because there's a a weak 5 and a strong 5, a weak 6 and a strong 6, and then 7. So there's actually 10 points on this scale. It goes from 0 to 7, and um, it measures something different than the magnitude scale that's used for for internationally. Um, Now, any guess on what the Shindo reading of the uh, the, uh, the the Tohoku earthquake of 2011 was? That's right. It was seven, the strongest, 7.0. It was it was a seven on the Shindo scale. And if you ask anyone in Japan how strong was this earthquake, if you ask a Japanese person, like I asked my wife not so long ago, how long how strong was this earthquake? She said it was a seven, because that's how Japanese have been told about this. That's that's in the Japanese um, meteorological agency seismic intensity scale. It was a seven. So that's where a lot of this confusion comes from. And even the maps that these people who are putting this out point to, they say, no, 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 there's some confusion between the Shindo scale and the Richter scale. But look, you can get this confirmed by different sources. Look, this map, for example, shows the Richter scale measurements. And uh, it shows there was a 5.6, just 24 miles from the epicenter, or a a 6.67 at the strongest intensity. And they put this map out there, and it comes from the Japanese Meteorological Agency and different sources. So it looks like it's very professional and oh it's very officially sourced but it's actually kind of head scratching because well not head scratching head slapping more like it because if you look at the source they provide that they say no this is richter scale it was it's saying 6.67 on the richter scale 
right next to that 6.67. It says in Japanese, it says Shindo 7. Shindo. It's the Shindo scale. And it says right there in, in Japanese. But obviously the people who put this out can't read Japanese and don't really understand the system that they're talking about. It's, it's really... I mean, it's just... Uh, you've got to shake your head and wonder because at, at, at the most gracious interpretation, the people who forward this myth are just ill-informed, shall we say, and uh, don't know what they're talking about and forwarding this misinformation. At the other end of the scale, of course, it could be deliberate disinformation to muddy the waters. At either either way, they've got it wrong. And um, these are just some of the basic things that, again, people... It's just such basic knowledge here in Japan, but people outside of Japan probably don't know about it and don't know how to read Japanese and, and things of that nature, so they just can't actually um, understand this information. And that's it's sad that this gets propounded and gets believed by people outside who have every reason to believe, well, someone's writing this on the internet, why would they be lying to me? Or how could they possibly get it wrong? So again, you know, don't take my word for it. Look at some of the links I'll provide in the links uh, section, the show notes. And um, again, we have to be smarter about these types of things because there are, are uh, there are people out there who either don't know what they're talking about or do know what they're talking about who are spreading bad information about things like this that lead to a lot of confusion. All right, let's leave that there. Um, let's move on to Eddie, who writes, uh, I am sure you are aware of the Ebola virus in Western Africa that has killed hundreds and infected over a thousand people. My question is that will the Ebola virus mutate and kill 90% of us all, or is it just more fear-mongering from the MSM? Um, yes, this is a very timely question, obviously, with this current Ebola outbreak taking up some headlines and a lot of people concerned about it, and I think for good reason. Um, there are there's different takes on this. Some people, like uh, John Rappaport, is basically saying that this whole thing is a hoax and that Ebola is not necessary is not nearly so contagious as they are saying it is. And for example, you can read his Ebola covert op in a hypnotized world for more on his take on it. But um, I think ultimately this. This phenomenon seems slightly different than the swine flu of a few years ago, because the swine flu, as we now know, and it's been admitted, it's been investigated by the European Council and others, it, it was a stage-managed crisis that was really perpetrated and hyped by the World Health Organization, uh, specifically people on their, their uh, panel for declaring a, a pandemic emergency who were themselves connected to the very companies that made the swine flu uh, vaccines that were rushed out in the wake of this to capitalize on that, that really stood to make, I mean, the companies made billions of dollars off of these vaccine contracts or, or hundreds of millions. I mean, it was clearly a big uh, a big swindle that that went on in the name of this this hype that they themselves created and ended up killing far 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 fewer people than the average um, flu virus does. So the swine flu virus was a lot of hype, a lot of um, panic and commotion. There was the monetary part of that. There was also some... Um, obviously, they moved the football further down the field in terms of implementing medical martial law. I've got a podcast episode about that that you can listen more about that and how they put in a lot of legislation to deal with potential future pandemics on the back of that swine flu hysteria. I think the Ebola thing that's happening right now is different. It doesn't look like they were prepared for this beforehand, and it doesn't look like they're trying to... In fact, there are certain vaccines, or at least potential vaccines, that are actually being blocked by the FDA right now. So... 
again, I think this is a different phenomenon entirely. I, my sense, again, this is just speculation, my sense is that this is a, a, a real, a genuine Ebola outbreak that they are piggybacking on right now, and they're doing crazy things like sending people to the United States, to Germany, to get treated for this in regular hospitals, not under any really specific type of quarantine other than a little uh, tarpaulin that they, they pull around the bed. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous what they're doing right now. Absolutely unprecedented in previous Ebola outbreaks, what they're attempting to do with this. My sense is that they are trying to spread the panic, certainly, and um, I don't think that this is the big depopulation bioweapon that they're releasing right now, but I think it, it is preparatory to that, and I think ultimately, at some point, a bioweapon release is going to be the depopulation tool of choice when we get to that part of the endgame, and I don't know how far away that is, but I think ultimately that will be used. And events like this, I think, are going to be preparatory to that, seeing how the, the population reacts to it, seeing how the, the, the fear and the, the hype spread through the, uh, the media, seeing what, what, what they can put out there, how much they can manipulate the, the, just the scientific understanding. They're trying to say that this isn't really communicable um, through, through air. Um, but in fact, recent research has shown that Ebola is communicable um, in that way. So again, I mean, there's so many different aspects to this. I don't think that ultimately, my sense isn't that this is a staged bioweapons release. Um, but again, that's speculation as well. And as staged bioweapons releases could happen in a lot of ways. There could be genuine accidents that come from government research facilities that's, that end up spreading out into the population. There could be um, deliberate spreading of bioweapons by crazed, lone nut rogue scientists who just, you know, oh, there's too many of us, let's get rid of some. The sort of 12 monkeys or uh, V for Vendetta scenario. Or um, there could be, of course, the, the staged managed one that comes from the top, as in depopulation now. Um, so again, there's so many possibilities to sort through, and uh, again, the action will be in the reaction. But however really it plays out, however it plays out, it plays into their hands insofar as it actually... Um, helps to spread the panic and helps to move the football even further down the field towards eventually the implementation of medical martial law. So I think we have to be very wary of that. And again, I'll put in a link to that podcast so you can read more about that. Okay, let's move on to Dan, who has a speak pipe message. Hey, James, in your Bitcoin interview with Roger Veer, did you eventually receive your 0.1 Bitcoin? The suspense is killing me. Thank you for that very monotonic question, Dan. <laughs> um, actually, yes, if you rewatch the very, very end of that interview, you'll see that, in fact, yes, I did get my 0.1 Bitcoin. It, uh, it, was, it was literally, I just got logged out, and when I logged back in, it was there. That's my... Uh... Okay, so I will scan that. And I will send you 0.1 Bitcoins, which is around 5,000 yen. A little bit more. Wow. And while we're finishing up that can process. How long does it take a, a transaction like that to process? Uh, if you check your phone right now, you should have it. I have to sign in again. <laughs> Speaking of which, I can confirm I actually did get the point one. so thank you very much. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you. All right, always good to have a very simple and straightforward question to answer. Okay, um, let's, let's move on to the next question here. Um, in fact, uh, this one comes from Deborah. It says, seeing bricks take hold and open for business has brought forth... Uh, both questions and concerns. At first I was delighted, then skeptical, and now confused as Germany has joined the ranks and many more countries are knocking at the door. I was wondering if you might share your thoughts to how these mergers may affect the international banking cartel's stranglehold on society. Did we just shift into mock speed 
down the New World Government Highway headed right for the World War III cliff, or is BRICS the detour that offers real hope for humanity? Yes, thank you for this question, Deborah. This is an important question, especially now that people are saying, well, look, the BRICS Development Bank was just released or just announced in Brazil uh, just before this MH17 happened, and was this MH17 an attempt to take down one of the BRICS, you know, important members just as they're trying to get uh, off the ground with this new development bank? And, and there was a lot of questions circulating around about this. Ultimately, do I think that the BRICS and their their own intergovernmental uh, you know institutions are going to be the answer to this? I really don't. I really do see this as genuinely part of the dialectic. On one side of the dialectic, you have the evil, clearly out of control, mayhem-inducing globalists who uh, have the World Trade Organization and the IMF and the World Bank and all of these um, uh, Washington consensus institutions that are clearly creating havoc and undermining and, and putting countries into debt servitude and, and uh, taking over those countries and, and basically carving out their flaming hulks and instituting IMF riots and all of that sort of thing that we've seen in country after country around the periphery of the global economic system coming towards the heart and in places like Europe where we're now seeing the, the riots and things that have developed there and the IMF enslavement of uh, Greece and things like this. So that is clearly one side of that dialectic. The other side is going to be posited as the good side of the globalist institutions. These are the good global institutions that are these countries working together for peace and harmony and all of the things that, you know, the United Nations espouses. So, you know, this is what globalism is all about. It's the good sunshine and lollipops of people who love you, who are coming to, to take care of you and uh, coddle you and uh, wrap you in swaddling clothing. Um, that's what these gl globalist institutions are about. They're the good ones. So, I, again, it, I think it's like the NATO versus the uh, Russia-China kind of thing that's developing as well. It's like, here's the evil empire, and here's the good empire. So go with the good empire. Yay, empire! And ultimately, it gets us to sign on to the very thing that we're supposed to be fighting against. We're against the globalist institutions, but these are good globalist institutions, and, and they're combating the bad ones. So let's let's put our, our time and efforts and energy into the good globalist institutions. Or this is the evil military empire, but this is the good one. So let's side with the good one. Again, uh, this is exactly how the dialectic functions. This is what it looks like. They create the false choice where one of them is clearly a bad choice and one of them looks like a good choice, but they ultimately have the same roots, the same ideas underlying them. And when you sign on to globalist institutions, you are signing on to globalism. And then suddenly, you know, five decades down the road, the bricks or whatever you supported because they looked like the good guys could suddenly become the bad guys. And oh, look, they were controlled by the bad guys all along. Who knew? Um, this is the this is I think the the trick, and this is why I don't sign on to globalist institutions. I don't sign on to military empires. I don't put my faith, my identity, my 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 energies um, behind any of these. It's all about what we can do as individuals to take power back into ourselves. That is what the system really cares about. That's what they're concerned about. That's why they never offer that as a potential solution. They always want you to sign on your identity to the next big solution that just furthers uh, the football down the field in towards their goal. Okay, um, having said that, let's close up this questions for Corbett. As, as we always do, we try to include one positive comment of someone who's, who's changed their life in a positive way. In fact, I've had a couple, and sorry, Garrett, I promised I was going to put yours in, in here, but we don't have time for it. Let's just go to Tom, who put in a speak pipe message about uh, the Corbett Report and how the alternative media has changed his life. Hi, Corbett. Um... I haven't followed your work for a few months now, um, 
I've been very busy working on my blog, uh, blog posts, but also musical compositions and, and even pastel drawings, all of which have been inspired by your political observations and information. So thanks to you, I just want to say good news. I've achieved more freedom than I ever hope, could hope to achieve because you, you, you made me feel allowed to actually do my own stuff and actually say what I wanted to say. So it's testimony to your exceptionally magnanimous spirit that uh, you had such an effect on me. The battle we're fighting, I mean, in different ways, is an old battle between wisdom and ignorance. Uh, and there is a lot of confusion out there, a lot of manipulation, calculation, and it's literally an everyday struggle to try and find oneself in all this ocean of disinformation, uh, petty-mindedness. It's a real daily struggle. So I, as someone who has made a lot of effort to try and carve their own nest against the tide, um, I, I understand your the, the magnitude of your achievement, and I just want to say bravo. Okay, Tom, thank you very much for that message. Um, people who are interested in Tom's website, commemoratum.blogspot.co.uk, I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go follow that and take a look. Um, once again, this media um, is making a difference in people's lives, not just the Corbett Report, of course, alternative media generally. It is having an effect. I know that there are a lot of people who get frustrated because they have people in their own lives who reject this information. Do not give in to the frustration. There are a lot of people out there who will reject you or ridicule you or throw this back in your face when you try to give it to them. But those are the exact same people who five years, ten years down the road, who knows? They'll say, you know what? You were right about that economic crisis after all. And what do you think about this? And you will be surprised how that plays out. You never know how the seeds you plant will flower. And maybe you'll never even see that flowering yourself. Maybe it'll happen some other time in some other way. But you are planting seeds out there by helping to spread this information. And it is making a difference in people's lives. So my hat's off to all of you out there for helping to make this possible. And on that note, we're going to end the, the questions for Corbett episode here. Um, next week, a regular edition of the podcast, and I'm going to be talking about MH17, laying out everything that we know about this, this crisis. Uh, for people who don't know, there's a great thread that's going on on CorbettReport.com right now of people who are contributing to um, the, the discussion about MH17, providing all sorts of links and resources and documents. I will let you look at that. And of course, if you want to participate, CorbettReport.com members, if you sign up for a membership, you can log in and leave your comments. I will use those as part of the basis for next week's podcast. So get your comments in uh, over the course of the next week, and we will incorporate them into the next podcast. And until then, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thank you for tuning in.